Good morning. You may have noticed that a number of those songs were uh, centered on the theme of the power of God and the power of Jesus Christ. Like today, we find some exa- some examples in the Bible in the times of the apostles where it was accused, there were allegations made that the proclamation and that the faith and the belief in the power of God and the power of Christ was not grounded on or based on anything in history. It wasn't grounded in fact. It wasn't based on actual truth. Peter writes, the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales. You could substitute that with myths, fables, legends, hearsay. We did not follow these things when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to give an account of, of, a, of a very incredible, very unique, very privileged experience that, that he and James and John had on the Mount of Transfiguration when they, when they were eyewitnesses of his majesty, when they heard, when they, when they saw the majestic glory and they heard the, the voice of the Father. Peter says this in verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure or which is more sure than even the amazing experience that they had. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And it's with that in mind that I want us to read Numbers chapter 32. This is, again, one of those passages, much like the genealogies. It has information that you, you will read and you may wonder, what use is this to me? This is, this is an account of, this is a review of the journey in the wilderness. As we read this, I just want you to see that God's word is not grounded in hearsay. It is not ground. It is not a myth. It is not a fable. It is grounded in truth. The academics right now in the seminaries will say that the history of the Old Testament was propaganda. That what we have in the scripture, it's not trustworthy. That it was a cleverly devised tale. Therefore, you shouldn't believe it and yet when we read this we see we see names we see locations we see detailed and a detailed accounting of a journey i i just want you to see this comes across like a reliable historical document i want you to know that the bible you have in your hands is true and believable These are the journeys of the sons of Israel. 
by which they came out from the land of Egypt by their armies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting places. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month. On the 15th day of the first month, on the next day after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians. While the Egyptians were burying their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgment on their gods. Then the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses and camped in Sukkoth. They journeyed from Sukkoth and camped in Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. They journeyed from Etham and turned back to Phi-Hahiroth, which faces Baal-Zephon, and they camped before Migdal. They journeyed from before Hiheroth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness and they camped and they went three days journey into the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. They journeyed from Marah and came to Elam. And in Elam there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees and they camped there. They journeyed from Elam and camped by the Red Sea. They journeyed from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dofka. They journeyed from Dofka and camped at Alush. They journeyed from Alush and camped at Rephidim. Now it was there that the people had no water to drink. They journeyed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hata Ava. They journeyed from Kibroth Hata Ava and camped at Hazaroth. They journeyed from Hazaroth and camped at Rithma. They journeyed from Rithma and camped at Rimon Perez. They journeyed from Ramon Perez and camped at Libna. They journeyed from Libna and camped at Rissa. They journeyed from Rissa and camped at Keha. Kehalatha. They journeyed from Kehalatha and camped at Mount Shefer. They journeyed from Mount Shefer and camped at Haradah. They journeyed from Haradah and camped at Makaloth. They journeyed from Makaloth and camped at Tahath. They journeyed from Tahath and camped at Terah, or Terah. They journeyed from Terah and camped at Mithka. They journeyed from Mithka and camped at Hashmanah. They journeyed from Hashmanah and camped at Masaroth. They journeyed from Masaroth and camped at Bene Jakan. They journeyed from Bene Jakan and camped at Hor Hagidgad. They journeyed from Hor Hagidgad and camped at Jatbatha. They journeyed from Jatbatha and camped at Abranah. They journeyed from Abranah and camped at Ezion Geber. They journeyed from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. They journeyed from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor at the edge of the land of Edom. There Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the sons of Israel had come from the land of Egypt on the first day in the first month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, heard of the coming of the sons of Israel. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmanah. They journeyed from Zalmanah and camped at Punan. They journeyed from Punan and camped at Oboth. They journeyed from Oboth and camped at Ai-Abarim, at the border of Moab. They journeyed from Iyim and 
camped at Deban Gad. They journeyed from Deban Gad and camped at Alman Diblathaim. They journeyed from Alman Diblathaim and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. They journeyed from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshimoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. Now, I've heard it said that traumatic experiences uh, cause certain details to be firmly imprinted in your minds. And so the next time you read a long genealogy or a long list of, of uh, details that would seem to be minutiae to you, just remember, lodged in your brain right now, the word of God is historical, reliable truth. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this reliable word. We thank you that we, that our faith is not grounded on fable or cleverly devised tales. It's not propaganda. It's not myth. It's not hearsay. Our faith is based on concrete truth that can be traced back to uh, historical, reliable, um, eyewitness of count, uh, eyewitness accounts of, of your dealings with your people. We thank you for even for passages such as this that serve to affirm this certain reliability of your word. Let us let us forevermore be uh, affirm this in our minds that your word is true. Amen. I now invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one. Two weeks ago. We began Paul's prayer, or Paul recounting his prayer. And we saw that his prayer is composed of two things. He is first giving praise to God or expressing his gratitude for the uh, believers in and around Ephesus. And then uh, we saw that his uh, prayers also consists of praying bringing petitions before God for these believers. We covered the first half two weeks ago. We will cover verse 17 today, and then verses 18 to 23 we will cover next week. If we were to come up with a list of the pressing needs of the church body today, I I don't think it would be too difficult to come up with a rather long list of, of items we live in a godless, unbelieving culture, and so many are lost. No surprise there. And so evangelism needs to be a priority. Some would point out that the church has become compromised with worldliness, just as it did with Israel, so it, does, so it happens with us. And so we need to make... Some would say, some would argue, uh, more emphasis on the holiness of God in the life of the church. Others would point out that there is a rather shocking ignorance of the Bible and the lives of believers. And so we need to invest more heavily in solid faithful preaching and sound teaching. And that yet others would point out that while some churches have a solid knowledge of the Bible, there is a disconnect between the pulpit 
and the pew. And so discipleship needs to be made a priority. And then some would point out that there are unchristian and worldly and even demonic ideals and principles that are competing to become our principles, our world views. And so we need to train ourselves how, how to be better salt, how to be better light in a culture that is more and more embarrassed by the church and would rather just dismiss the church altogether. And then there's the presence of false teachers and the very real damage their compromised doctrine wrecks on the body of Christ. All those things are important today, just as they were important in the days of the early church, like the church in Ephesus and the churches around Ephesus. And yet when Paul writes to them, when he, when he pulls back the veil and he reveals his heart, when he reveals his primary and his central desire, his most urgent desire for the church, it's not any of these things that qualify in Paul's mind as the greatest, most urgent need in the church. It's not what his prayers day and night focus on. What Paul prays for, what he prays for again and again and again in the life of the Ephesian believers is this, that they would know God better. The greatest need of the church is that she would better know her God. The greatest need of the people of God is that they might know their God. Everything else, all of those other matters, as important as they are, take a back seat to this urgent, crucial matter, church. We must, we must know our God. And we must know Him better. And that is, this is my great concern and, and my desire as, as I bring this passage before you. I see, I see this clearly in the heart of the Apostle Paul, and so I, I model my prayers after His. As I said earlier, this is one of two things that he says consist of his regular prayers. The first in verses 15 to 16 being that he is unceasingly giving thanks to God for the divine work that he has become privy of, that he has, uh, that has been disclosed to him. That is his praise. That is his cause for gratitude. But then we see here, beginning in verse 17, and really following to the, to the end of the chapter, we see his prayer that God would further work in their lives. That what God started, he would bring to completion by causing them to know him better. That is his petition. That is the heart of his prayer of his plea, of his great concern as he intercedes on their behalf before the Lord. Now, as I said, we're going to cover verse 17 today. This is the heart of Paul's prayer. This is the bird's eye view. This is the big picture of Paul's prayer. 
I pray that you would, that God would cause you, that He would make you, that He would affect you to know Him better. I think the NIV uh, actually translates it like that, and that's very helpful. That's the big picture prayer. Know God better, please. And the next week we'll look at verses 18 to 23. We see, um, you know, Paul being a good teacher, being an effective teacher. He gives, he gives you the big picture of what he's, of what he's praying for, of what he's hoping for. But then he gives three particulars, three hooks to hang your, your thoughts on, your theological thoughts on. Specifically, that you would know the hope of his calling, that you would know the riches of his inheritance, and that you would know his power. Those are the particulars. Today we're just going to focus on the, on the bird's eye view of prayer, the heart of Paul's prayer. This, but let's read it in its entirety. Verse. I'll start with uh, verse 15 again. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith... In the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So today that's, that's focused, that set our, our minds, our hearts to contemplate the heart of Paul's prayer. He prays that we would know God better. I, I make, he says, I make unceasing mention of you in my prayers that, this is a purpose clause, this is the purpose for his praying, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And what I'm going to attempt to do is to disclose, uh, I'm going to try to pull the hood back and disclose to you the heart of Paul's petition for the Ephesian church and really his petition for us here today. What is prompting this great pastoral intercessory prayer that we see in Paul? Why, what is his burden? What is fueling his prayer life. What is, what is it that is so important that he brings this request before the Lord day after day and night after night? In John 17, where we find the Lord's high priestly prayer, as it's called, Jesus says in verse 3, John 17, verse 3, he says, this is eternal life. Now, he is about to define it, and whatever he says, 
whatever follows those words is, is important. He says, this is eternal life, namely that they, and who's the they? He says in the previous verse, all whom the Father has given to the Son, that they may know you. That's eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In the West, we tend to think of eternal life as really only, uh, we, we think of eternal life only in terms of, of its duration, typically, usually. Uh, we tend to think of it or define it as life that goes on and on and on and on. But that's not how the Jews envisioned or understood eternal life the jews also took into account the manner of life the nature of life the quality of life and so when jesus is talking about eternal life he's not just talking about those who are going to be around for a while he's talking about those who live abundantly those who will abundantly enjoy the life that they continue to go on living. And that sentiment is reflected in Jesus' word in an earlier chapter in the book of John. John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, on the other hand, I come... I came that they may have life. And, and he says here what every Jew would have, und, would have, would have said, no, duh. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Paul knew that eternal life is an abundant life and that eternal life is found in knowing the only true God. And so he prays that the knowledge of God might not just be planted, not just exist, but that it would that that it would abound, that it would thrive in the lives of these believers. Now, in addition to being integral, extremely related to eternal life, Pastor Richard Phillips gives me a few more reasons why why knowing God, why the knowledge of God is so vitally important to the Christian life. He brings up the glorious excellency of God. Knowing God has immediate value, incredible value because of the, because of his glorious excellency. Spurgeon said this, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the deity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. It is, it is so deep that our pride is drowned in its, in its infinity. And that while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. Nothing, says Spurgeon, nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing will so magnify the whole soul of man as the devout, earnest, continuing study of the great subject of deity. In other words, it's worth your consideration. And as we look down and read about God and discover what he is like, I pray that we would be truly, sincerely, from our hearts, considering his attributes, that we would contemplate how, how is God like us? How is he unlike us? How does he 
utterly transcend us in the created order. Beloved, we need to look up to Him and we need to see that these truths, these, these attributes of God, these, these propositional statements about who God is, what He is, what He is like, what He's not, we need to look up at Him and see we're not just learning facts about a force. We are learning facts. We are learning, learning truths about a personal, infinite, aware, conscious, imminent, seeing, knowing, intervening, discerning, wise, powerful, holy creator who also happens to be our judge, our savior, and our king. We are not learning about a force. We are learning about our God. Where do we go to learn about God? Every Sunday school student should be able to say the Bible. The Word of God reveals God. And because it is His Word, because it reveals Him, what we say about the Bible intrinsically reflects about what we say and what we think about God. Listen to what Psalm 19 says. Many of you are familiar. Uh, we, 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 uh, a couple of months ago during uh, Sunday school on the chapter about that focus on Scripture, we memorized Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired and profitable, right? Uh, profitable for truth. And, you know, there, there is an Old Testament passage that sets the same precedent. It is a very pro-Scripture. It is a, it is a very Scripture-exalting portion of Scripture, and that is Psalm 19. Another one is Psalm 119, but we don't have enough time to read that. Psalm 19, particularly verse, verses 7 and following. And I, and I want you to just listen to what the Word of God says about the Word of God because these, these qualities, these attributes, as we, as we confess they are true of the Word of God, they are also true of the God of the Word of God. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That means reliable, firm, unmovable. Uh, it, it was suitable. It is suitable for the foundation of your life. Think of the words of Jesus. He who hears my words and does them is like the man who built his house upon the rock. The word of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord is that sure rock making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. This is another construction term. It really means, uh, uh, it was used to describe the angle being good. Um, that would, like in a cornerstone or that first, that first beam that you construct and, and sets the pattern for every other beam in the house. The first beam, if the angle and the first beam is off, the whole house is off. The precepts of the Lord are right. They are good. They are acceptable. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, undiluted, uncontaminated with some inferior substance. It's the good stuff and nothing but the good stuff. Enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It is acceptable. It is desirable. It is choice. 
enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are trustworthy. They are reliable. They are unchanging. They are binding. They are all, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter, sweeter. Also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What we say about the word of God reflects what we say about God. People will stand and admire a painting for hours. And if they go back to the museum again, they'll adore it for days. Because they, they, they would say, I'm not really an art guy, but these people would say that they appreciate the beauty and the skill behind each individual stroke and the, and the deliberate choice of the, of the, not only the colors of the paint, but the, 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 the kind of paint. Are you using oil? Are you using, I don't know if any, I don't know if a water-based painting is ever going to find itself into a fancy museum, but I, I said I'm not a, I said I'm not an art guy. Don't shoot the messenger. I, I, I think of like, oh, never mind. <laughs> People, for the sake of a splotch of paint on a canvas, people will stand and admire it for hours upon hours because they see beauty in it. They see excellence in it. Beloved, I, I want you to see, I want you to know and believe, not because it's my opinion, but because the word of God says it, that your God is so gloriously excellent that you will behold him for millennia upon millennia upon millennia. And you have to accept this by faith now, but you will never stop marveling at his glorious excellency. You will never stop appreciating him we will never grow tired or bored with learning about him with god the wow will never stop so the glorious excellency of god means that knowing him is worth pursuing richard phillips also points out that Theology has imminently practical applications. Theology has imminently what, what we, what we come to know about God, what we believe about God has imminently practical applications. He says, this is Pastor Richard Phillips. He says, by studying and coming to know God, we find a ready comfort for our fears and are made bold for courageous obedience. The knowledge of God, the study of God will comfort us in our fears and afflictions and give us a courageous boldness for living unto him. What that means is knowing God will impact the choices you make. Knowing God will make you and cause you to act wisely in difficult circumstances. Knowing God will comfort you in times of suffering. Now I want to read Psalm, those verses in Psalm 19 again. I'm going to, I'm going to emphasize uh, not the quality, but the effect that the quality of God has on us. Being perfect, the law of the Lord restores the soul. 
Do you know what a leather restoration kit does? Takes a nasty old piece of dried, cracked leather and makes that thing look shiny and brand spanking new. Being perfect, the law of the Lord restores, it refreshes, it rejuvenates the soul. Have you ever known someone who is racked with guilt and they have no peace and there is no end to their woes, there is no end to their troubles, they have no, no solution in sight? That is a soul in need of restoration. Being perfect, the law of the Lord restores the soul. Being sure the testimony of the Lord makes, makes the simple wise. Any, any simple people in here? I'm one. I'm one. The law, the testimony of the Lord makes simpletons like us wise. Being right, the precepts of the Lord makes the heart rejoice. Being pure, the commandment of the Lord enlightens the eyes. That's a word we'll look at next week. It turns the lights on. Being clean, the fear of the Lord endures forever. And now I want to, I want to go to verse 11 where I, where I stopped before. Moreover, by them, by the word of the, of God, which reveals God, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And I would posit before you that the soul that knows God is a rewarded soul. The life that is lived in the knowledge of God is a rewarding life. Therefore, beloved, know the Lord. Know the Lord. I'll say it again. Theology has imminently practical applications. Knowing, knowing God makes us better prepared and better equipped to act wisely and to do what is right. And here's a couple examples of how, how theology impacts us. The Bible says that God created everything and because he did that, that means he owns everything. He created everything. He owns everything. And that means he has the right to do with whatever and whoever he wants. Davis, do you remember Psalm 24, 1? The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Well, why is that? What right does God say? What, 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 what right does God have to claim to the world? Well, Verse 2, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. That is an appeal to a theological understanding. That is an appeal to creation. And I would say knowing that is going to dramatically impact your worldview. You'll know that this is God's world. And this is the... this. Sentiment is the foundation for another theological premise of God, namely his sovereignty. We, we, go, we, we take this idea, we go to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. We'll know that because 
we'll know that he takes care of the world that he created. He feeds the bird. He clothes the, he clothes the grass and the lilies of the field. And because he does that for the, for the lesser of his creation, he'll certainly do that for us who are made in his image. Matthew 10:29 Jesus says not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God which is to say that even the most insignificant thing you can imagine a little nameless bird falling to the ground and dying even that doesn't happen apart from God's sovereign will and what this tells us, what the implication or the conclusion for these uh, um, attributes of God directly contrasts what we hear in the world. What does the world tell us? The world tells us that we are nothing but space dust. You are space dust and chemicals. What was it that Carl Sagan said? The cosmos is all that ever was and all that ever will be. You are space dust. I mean, you... You hear right now, you know, certain lives matter. Ask why. Not I'm not I'm not focusing on the on the the individuals that are represented in that movement, but just from a from a sociological, from a evolutionary point of view, from Carl Sagan's point of view, why do any lives matter? You need a theological foundation to answer that question. The world tells us we are space dust and chemicals. The world tells us, the academies tell us, the, the wisdom of this age, the professionals, the sages tell us that your life is at the random, indifferent, meaningless hand of fate. That is what controls your life. There is no purpose. There is no direction. There is no meaning. There is no value. But knowing God will prove to you that that's a lie because knowing God will give you the boldness and the comfort to know it being grounded in truth minds you that even the mundane, insignificant events of our lives are under his watchful gaze and are, are actually ordained according to his sovereign plan. Beloved, that will impact your life. Theology will impact your worldview, your life, your choices, your values. I say it again, theology has imminently practical applications. What do I mean by imminently? What that means is, is this is not just ivory tower speculations that are great in some isolated circumstances of life. They are imminent. They are practical for you right now. Where you are, where you live. From Sunday to Saturday. It's not just ivory tower, pie in the sky speculation. It's truth, it's wisdom, it's eternal life. Beloved, know your God. A few more. Psalm 139. There, there, there was a, a line in one of the songs we sung this morning that referred to the omnipresence of God. And Psalm 139, 139 tells us this. David is, is, is talking 
And he's saying that there's absolutely, and this is my summary, there's absolutely nowhere he can go where God isn't already there. He can get up bright and early in the morning before any sane person would dare to get up. God's already up. He can climb the highest mountain. God's already there. He can sail out to the most remote, remotest part of the sea. God's already there. He can ascend to heaven. God's there. He can make his bed in hell. God's there. Knowing that God is everywhere will impact the decisions you made, you make. I, I tell you this, knowing that God is everywhere and that there's nowhere you can go where God isn't already there, that would have saved Jonah some trouble. Knowing God was what emboldened Moses to stand before Pharaoh. Knowing God was what emboldened David to stand before Goliath. Knowing God was what emboldened the prophets and the Old Testament saints to defy wicked kings of Israel and Judah and even Babylon. Here's one example. I mean, I I think everyone in here knows uh, the story of Daniel's three friends. There was a documentary on VeggieTales about it. So I won't tell you that one, but here, here's one. Uh, I love Isaiah. Isaiah, I, 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 he is my favorite prophet. In Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah is sent by God to rebuke King Ahaz. King Ahaz was the father of Manasseh. Ahaz was one of the really bad ones. I mean, there, there were a lot of kings that were bad eggs. Ahaz was one of the really bad ones. And he is sent by God to rebuke the king. And this is an this is an age, beloved. This is an age where things didn't go well for the guy who bring who displeases the king by you know I don't know telling him that he's a that he's evil and wicked and lawless and that God's curse is coming upon him. Stuff like that, you know, kind of has a, a a PR effect. And yet we see him boldly go before the king and deliver the message in chapter 7. He actually names his kid, Mashal Hashbaz. He actually names his kid in an indictment against the king. Meaning, which is, by trivia point, longest name in the Bible, Mashal Hashbaz. And the name means, by the time this boy is old enough to do a certain thing, you are going to be gone. It's a judgment. He makes this bold indictment to the king. You would ask, where does he get the chutzpah to do that? Where did Isaiah get the boldness and the conviction that we see in chapter 7? I'll tell you where. He got it from his theological encounter of God that he recounts in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is his recounting of, of his vision where God called him at a time where there were, there had been many bad Kings and Israel had been on a serious multi-generational decline. Isaiah has a vision that despite that, 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 that revealed to him that despite the, the social and the religious unrest, despite the, the, the spiritual and the religious compromise and decline that had been prevalent in Israel and Judah for generations, despite the, the wicked king sitting on Israel's throne, 
the creator is still sitting on his throne. The heavenly king is still sitting on his heavenly throne and he is still the sovereign one. That theological understanding, that grasping of certain truths about God impacted Isaiah's life. I'll say it again. Theology has imminently practical applications. And just as a side note, if you ever wondered, why didn't God just give us a bunch of do's and don'ts? He could have, he could have uh, cut the, 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 the printing cost and the word count of the Bible by, you know, 90%. If he just, why didn't he just give us do this, don't do that, keep it plain and simple? You know, some business-minded people, I'm sure, would really love the Bible to be that clear-cut and simple. But here's why. A list of do's and don'ts doesn't provide the context that makes the practicality of theology recognizable. We find in the accounts of God's people, we, we find proof, we find evidence, we find pictures of theology being put into practice and benefiting the believer or being neglected to his detriment. The knowledge of God has imminently practical applications. Theology has imminently practical applications. R.C. Sproul came out with a number with a book a number of years ago, and it was titled "Everyone's a Theologian." Do you know what the point of the book was? Everyone's a theologian. You know why that is? Because theologians are not just people who get paid a lot of money to work in seminaries or lecture or sit in ivory tower offices. A theologian is simply somebody who has theological a theological position. And you know what? We all have that. Even the atheist is a theologian. He's a poor theologian. We are all theologians because we all have a theology. The question is, what kind of theologian are you? What kind of theology do you have? Third, Richard Phillips didn't come up with this one, but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this in. Knowing God is a simple matter of obedience to what God tells us to do. Theology, building our theology, investing in our theology is a simple matter of obedience to what God tells us to do. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus cited the Shema. The Shema, we're going to see that in a, uh, in a couple of weeks when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, specifically verses 4 and 5. This is a passage that every Jew would have intimately known because he recited it every day. It was very much like the Pledge of Allegiance um, has been for us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your might. And then verses 6 to 9 says this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. I would add so that you know them. 
so that you know your God. You shall teach them diligently to your children, I would add, so that they will know their God. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And now what the Jews did was they took that, I would say hyper-literally. I'm sure you know, I love the historical, literal uh, approach to hermeneutics. But they would take, they took this hyper-literally. And we see this, uh, uh, I don't, Jen, do they still do the phylacteries today? So they, when, 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 when God told them, when Moses told them to, uh, bind them to your, let's see, where is it? You shall bind them as a sign to your hand. They would actually take little, little pieces of paper and they would write this out and they would put it in a little box and dangle it from their wrists or, uh, or from their headband, from their hats. And, uh, there's a, uh, I know they still do this because I've seen it. It's called a mezuzah. Maybe you've heard of it. And it's the Shema written, put into a little box attached to the frame of their door. Now, what they did was they took, they obeyed the letter of the law, but they utterly failed to keep the heart of the law. The heart of the law was that they would know their God. And on what basis do I say they utterly failed? Their God, says the Gospel of John, tabernacled among them. He came to his own How's it go? His own received him not. Their God literally came into their midst. They did not know him. Your God wants you to know him. Your God wants you to set your heart on knowing him, to preoccupy your mind with knowing him. It's not just a matter of having this verse or that verse uh, committed to memory or may perhaps posted on your, um, on your fridge or engraved on a placard on your wall. What do those things matter if you don't personally know your God, if you don't personally love your God, if you don't personally adore the God behind that scripture that you're putting on your fridge or your wall or your, or your painting. To know God and to commit yourself to better knowing God is to love God. And Jesus says to love God is to obey the greatest commandment in all of scripture. There's a saying, throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. That is what Paul is praying for here. That is what Paul is praying for, that all the rich truths about who God is, what he is, what he what he's like and what he's done for the believer. Paul is praying that these blessed truths that are not that are not cleverly devised tales, but grounded in the truth of Scripture, that they would be thrown against the wall of your heart, as it were that they would be thrown against the wall of your heart and your mind and that they would stick 
like a noodle that's just about right. It's not just enough. It's not enough that the truth of God has been proclaimed and disclosed and made no, made known to these people, to these Ephesian believers. It's not enough that they've just simply been exposed to the knowledge of God. Paul knows it needs to be thoroughly prayed in. It needs to be worked in like a lotion. It needs to it needs to permeate into their hearts and their minds and their souls so that it would have an effect on them. And it is this most urgent need that causes Paul to go to his knees day after day and night after night, praying, God, give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Cause them to know. Make them know. Give them an attitude that desires to know you. It's the greatest need they have, it's, which means it's the greatest need we have. And here's, here's the point. If we get that down, all the other things fall in line. Theology is vast because God is vast. God is infinite. And if that's true, we could spend a lifetime studying him. And that's why I said, Paul, uh, being a helpful teacher, he gives three particular hooks to hang our theological thoughts on, which we're going to cover next week. Let's pray. God, make us to know you. Cause us to know you. You are so immediately worthy. You are worthy of being loved and worshipped and adored. You are worthy to be thought of all the day long. Forgive us for the, for the times we have made idols out of less worthy things. Forgive us for the many times that we have allowed other things, other values, even other people, other desires to compete with you. Let us, not, let, let us be a people whose lips not only honor you, but whose hearts are close, closely knit to you. Let us be a people whose hearts are so close to your own. Lord, forgive us for the times we have tolerated faulty thinking about you. Forgive us for the times that our faulty thinking has led to faulty practice before you. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this church I pray that your spirit would be at work among these dear people and I pray that your spirit would be at work in my own heart and soul. Forgive me for the times that my heart and mind is not right. For for the times that my priorities are not right. Make me to know you more. Make us all to know you more. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Give us a desire. Give us a hunger to know you more. Help us to know and to understand and accept that you are gloriously excellent. Help us to see the practical, uh, the practicality of theology and help us to walk in obedience. May 
what we do from here on out today be right and pleasing in your sight. Amen.